When you don't draw iron. Simmons, an open three. Air ball. They just don't have any touch. This is Broken Jumper, a weekly NBA podcast hosted by the voice of AM570 LA Sports. Bob Schmidt. Me, Bob Schmidt. What a narcissistic buffoon he is. Like and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. And now, is this basketball? Broken Jumper. Welcome to Broken Jumper, a weekly NBA podcast, maybe more than that in the future now that we're hitting the regular season. This is when my excitement just goes through the roof. One day away from the start of the regular season, two matchups on the slate for tomorrow evening. We have the LA Lakers, the Golden State Warriors, and of course, the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks taking on the Brooklyn Nets at full strength. Oh wait, they're not at full strength because Kyrie Irving has opted to not be playing due to his desire to remain unvaccinated for his own personal private reasons. He's not anti-vax. He's not pro-vax. He just believes that people are caught up in this whirlwind and losing their jobs and somebody has to stand up for what's right. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. In the end, it just boils down to Kyrie again, team cancer. He might not have COVID, but he certainly is just wreaking havoc upon the nets and whatever health there is amongst their team chemistry. But who knows? I hedged my bet. There's... While I do think Kyrie is the type of contrarian who just simply wouldn't come back because I want to make a statement, I think he left the door open. Let me play the clip specifically. Kyrie went on IG Live. He had a 20-something minute rant trying to explain his reasoning and say, don't listen to the media narrative. Just whatever you hear from me, that's the truth and blah, 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 and justifying his actions. I'm just going to play the audio first. Don't believe that I'm retiring. Don't believe that, you know, I'm going to give up this game uh, for a vaccine mandate or staying unvaccinated. Don't believe any of that shit, man. Like, like really be aware of what's being said uh, before I even get a chance to be on the podium and speak for myself. You know what I'm saying? Like all these people saying all these things about what's going on with me and it's just not true. Pay attention to what's going on out in the real world. You know, people are losing their jobs to these mandates. Uh, people are having to make choices with their own lives, which I respect, you know, and and I don't want to um, sit here and, and play on people's emotions either. Just use logic. You know, what would you do? I feel like he left the door open and call me a Kyrie optimist, which nobody ever has. But call me a Kyrie optimist in this situation. I think he left the door open for him to eventually say, well, I've decided to get the vaccination. Now, I don't think that's his first choice. I think there's also a possibility, though, that as this season wears on, he may be out for a super long time, but we don't even know where these mandates will stand by the time the playoffs roll around next year. There is a part, when you look at these mandates, where they're saying, okay, Kyrie can't play in Brooklyn, but an unvaccinated player coming in with a road team, he would be able to play in Brooklyn? Logically, that makes zero sense. And over the course of time, as we see it happen, as Bradley Beal rolls into town, as possibly Isaac does, assuming he's even healthy, as these guys come in, Michael Porter Jr., and they're allowed to play in Brooklyn, they're go- it's going to be held up to scrutiny to say, what is the logic behind this? Now, maybe they'll shore that rule up and also prevent road team players from participating in these contests. But one of those games rolls by where they see the hypocrisy kind of of it, and it's going to strengthen Kyrie's case I guess what I'm saying is I think one of two things is going to happen. 
Either Kyrie is going to cave and get vaccinated and then defend that choice as something that I was never anti-vax. I just needed to feel comfortable in my own decision and that this was best for me and my family. And I've come to that conclusion. You didn't pressure me into this because I'm my own man and your stupid media narratives. I just ignore them because they're bullshit. I think either that will happen or eventually as we get further and further removed from this pandemic, everything is more under control. Eventually they may repeal this or change this rule in a way that allows Kyrie to participate. And maybe that's what he's banking on because it allows for him to save face of sorts if he holds out and doesn't get this vaccination. But we'll see. I didn't want to make this about Kyrie. I am excited about tomorrow and I am excited about the opportunities it provides for some of the people who will benefit in the wake of Kyrie's absence. First of all, they strengthened the bench in Brooklyn considerably. They have Paul Millsap there now. They have Patty Mills. Joe Harris can take a bigger role. Cam Thomas, of course, their prized rookie who just lit it up in summer league. And anything further they get out of Claxton or Sharp. That's to say nothing of LaMarcus Aldridge returning. He's looked serviceable. So between he and Blake and all the options they have added to the front court in terms of Millsap and subtracting Jordan, I think this is going to be an interesting beginning of the season for the Nets because they're still going to be an excellent team. Kyrie or no Kyrie. They go as Kevin Durant goes, ultimately, by the time the playoffs roll around. But if he has a healthy Harden next to him, not that shell of a Harden that we got in the playoffs where he was just coming back off the injury, you're going to get some incredible basketball from them. And the Bucs, while they didn't do much this postseason, or this offseason, rather, I know they lost P.J. Tucker, and that certainly is a blow. But adding Grayson Allen, I think, is a low-key, understated, good move by them. They'll have Dante back, which is another addition. He, of course, missed most of the playoff run last year. So they retained Portis. Giannis looking even more confident, taking more shots from outside during this preseason. Hopefully he carries that momentum over at the line. We see some improvement there. And those are the two teams who, in all likelihood, and this isn't a bold take, this is just how it is, those two teams are the ones who are probably vying for a championship berth coming out of the Eastern Conference. Now on the other half of the opening night slate, you have the L.A. Lakers and the Golden State Warriors. And as we get into some of the predictions in terms of specifically talking about the most improved player candidates, there are some storylines beyond the main ones that I like in that game. One of them is Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole is a guy who lit it up in preseason. But more specifically, this isn't a new development. This isn't a summer league story of like a Cam Thomas who absolutely destroyed people who are simply not NBA talent level players. This is a guy who last year, due to the fact that Clay was out and he got an increased role, really came on towards the end of the season. In May, he played nine games in May, and the stats he put up during that time were pretty damn impressive. 18 points a game, almost three three three-pointers made a game. This isn't a Kevin Porter Jr. situation where the guy was just a shameless gunner who shoots a fairly underwhelming percentages from the floor. This was a guy who did it within a system that is going to look somewhat similar to what he had this year because Steph was there, Draymond was there, but his role is going to massively expand. And he's already had some big performances against the Lakers in this very preseason, including a highlight that almost everybody who's a big NBA fan has probably seen by this point where he just cooked Wayne Ellington. So he looks supremely confident. He's obviously a very versatile scorer. His handle is good. And his role, at least until Clay comes back, His role is pretty firmly cemented as the secondary option in this offense. He's going to get a lot of shots 
and he's going to have a lot of freedom to really show how much his game has grown. And I think that's part of the reason that we're seeing Jordan Poole atop the list along with Michael Porter Jr. as one of the favorites. Michael Porter Jr., Kevin Porter Jr., Jordan Poole, those at the moment are the three favorites for most improved player, depending on what odds book you look at. But they're all up there. Kevin Porter Jr., of course, this is a guy who can put up numbers, as evidenced by the fact that he scored 50 points at such a young age, under 20 years old, shipped in 11 assists with that. He is going to pile on assists as the primary ball handler in the backcourt. I don't know what we can expect to see from his scoring, but it really isn't even about volume for him. Yeah, you have to improve upon your 16 points a game if you're going to win most improved player, but you also need to do it fairly efficiently because at least in the context of where that team is right now, Jalen Green is going to be an offensive priority. They still have Christian Wood, who may take a step forward. It could go either way. I'm not sure what we'll see from Wood. They could absolutely make him the primary offensive option on that team. But there are questions as to whether he's even in their long-term picture. They may choose to prioritize the young guys entirely. Let them operate with carte blanche, green, Porter Jr., even some of Shengun, and keep Wood in the rotation, keep his touches up, keep his value up, but eventually look to move him because he's slightly older than the window that they're on. Now, me personally, I wanted to come out of the gate and talk about some of the things that I expect to see. I know Michael Porter Jr. is the favorite to win most improved player, and certainly he could. He's going to have a huge role on a good team. He was putting up great numbers last year, 19 points, seven points a game, and that was with a relatively quiet first half of the season before Jamal Murray got injured. So there is a distinct possibility we could see him put up numbers like 24 and 10 on great efficiency. This is a guy who hits three-pointers, hits his free throws, and shoots a very high percentage from the floor for you know, somebody who takes as many three-pointers as he does. So he absolutely, it would not shock me at all to see him win, but what fun is it to pick him as my guy to watch for most improved player. I wanted to go a little further down the chart. Now, certainly, he's on the lists, but this is not anybody's favorite by all accounts. It's a man who made the news just, well, in the last 24 hours as he came to terms on a huge extension, a very favorable extension, with the Memphis Grizzlies. Four years, $105 million, so over $25 million a season. And while that is a lot of money, If Jaron Jackson can capitalize on the opportunity in front of them this year, and that's primarily dictated by his ability to stay healthy, I think Jaron Jackson Jr. is my pick as the guy that I expect to walk away with most improved player. He has set the bar relatively low. And I say that in the sense of, if you think back on last season, do you even remember Jaron Jackson Jr.? No, probably not, because he only played in 11 games. His stats regressed, but the sample was so small, that doesn't really even matter. The real barometer here is how much can he improve upon his 2019 numbers, where he did 17 points, five rebounds, and he shot nearly 40% from three. Those were, of course, good numbers, but we've never seen an extended period where Jaron Jackson Jr. hasn't gotten dinged up in the last couple of years. So if he strings together a full season, where he's now the secondary option. Jonas is out of his way. Steven Adams is not the offensive priority that Valanchunas was. He is going to be the legitimate second option to John Morant. And I think it's entirely conceivable. He looks better as a rebounding big. He looks more aware defensively in this preseason already. He closed out the preseason with a monster 
outing where he hits seven three-pointers. So I think it's entirely conceivable that if he stays healthy, we could see Jaron Jackson Jr. average something closer to 22-7 and this year. And if the Grizzlies make some noise, it will strengthen his case all the more. Now, in terms of other names that we constantly see pop up in this conversation, I am a Cavs fan. As many people know, I host a secondary podcast entirely about the Cavs called Fear the Fro. In any case, my point is, I'm a Cavs fan, and I don't expect Garland to win most improved player. He is a popular choice amongst the prognosticators because he put together a solid season last year, 17 points, six assists, somewhere in that neighborhood, and people are expecting a leap there. But I look at that whole roster and all the firepower that they added, and statistically, I just don't see a case that Garland is going to do that. Now, my feelings could shift on that if the Cavs eventually move Colin Sexton. But if the roster is how it is at this moment, they have two very scoring-capable backcourt options in Sexton and Garland. And just in this offseason, they've added Evan Mobley as a number three overall pick. He's going to get a chance to contribute at least double-digit points a game. And Lowry Markinen, who looks like a volume scorer, far more reliable than Kevin Love, who's still there in a backup role. So that's a lot of mouths to feed that they didn't necessarily have to look at last year. And when you throw in some of those ancillary options, Sexton alongside him, not to mention Ricky Rubio getting significant minutes as a backup, I am expecting to see a statistical regression from both Colin Sexton. And I I think Garland will kind of hold his present numbers, but I don't know if I see him jumping over 20 points a game. His assist should go up, I agree, but I don't know if the scoring is going to go up to the degree that allows him to win most improved player. Now, if the Cavs win, of course, that'll strengthen his case, but nobody's really expecting that from Cleveland, as Vegas expects them to win less than 30 games. So without a significant team improvement, I just don't know that the individual numbers will come up to the place that they would need to be in order for him to win most improved player. Zion Williamson, I don't get why he's on this list. The guy was an absolute monster last year. If you're averaging high 20 points a game and you're shooting 60% from the floor and seven rebounds and four assists or whatever his numbers were, what would he have to do to win most improved player? I don't get why he's on this list at all. And OG Ananobi, I love him. He's way up the list on there. I think with Siakam coming in late and with Lowry out of the way, his usage on offense is going to go up considerably. And as far as real-life players, I'm not talking about just numbers, but just real-life impact on a game, OG Ananobi is unbelievable. Shoots a high percentage. His floor game has improved based on this preseason. He's initiating a lot more of the offense. And defensively, the guy is a monster. He has every chance to make that leap. I just don't know if he has the star cachet that will allow him to keep that usage when that team is at full strength. You're going to see shot-heavy year from Fred Van Fleet and, of course, Siakam when he does come back. And now the Raptors are back in Toronto. So maybe in a more comfortable environment, We see OG play even better, although he was not the one who was a question mark last year. A lot of the blame is being put on Siakam at this point. But with Lowry out of the mix, we'll get to see a Raptors team that is truly being led by Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam. And if OG takes another step, he could be right there amongst those guys. Now, the same argument I made against Zion winning most improved player is the one that I would put forth for Shea Gilgis-Alexander and John Moran. I think they're simply too good already to do it. Anthony Edwards... A very strong candidate. He absolutely, I would put amongst the guys who could win it, but I've made my choice. I'm going Jaron Jackson Jr., and I am writing off Sexton. I'm writing off Zion. I'm writing off Shea. 
I'm going to bet against Kevin Porter Jr., even though that's what the Cavs did, which burned them. I don't think he'll win it. I don't think people are going to respect him even putting up fairly big numbers on a garbage team like Houston. If somebody else does it in a better situation that's more conducive to playing winning basketball, then I think that's going to serve as an advantage for them amongst the vote-getters. So now if Triple J is my pick for most improved player, now we look at Rookie of the Year candidates. I have said on the record already that I believe it's Jalen Green's award to win. He's going to get extremely high usage in a situation where literally nobody is trying to rein him in. And not that Cade Cunningham will be reined in, but there's more talent around him, honestly. And I think there's more of an emphasis on him to get other people involved. Now, that may benefit him. It may up his counting stats, like his assists. He's going to be a strong rebounder, having that kind of size from the guard position. And if he chips in with some intangibles, some steals and blocks and stuff, Cade could absolutely win it. It's one and two, neck and neck, as to who the favorites are. While I think Jalen Green will win it, here are some other dark horse guys that I think are far, far too low in the rankings. One would be Cam Thomas, who I spoke of earlier. He is plus 5,000, certainly not a favorite by anyone's definition of the term. I think a lot of what contributes to a rookie being able to win rookie of the year is being willing to assert yourself. And certainly, if there's one thing that Cam Thomas is not in short supply of, it's confidence. Maybe that doesn't transpire in the regular season. Maybe he would be more deferential when put alongside Harden and Durant. But certainly, if anybody's got a puncher's chance from deep, deep in the rookie of the year odds of making enough of a scoring impact, it's a guy who's filling that vacuum created by Kyrie Irving's absence and a guy who's already shown that he is a very versatile scorer. He's got a deadly mid-range jumper, and they may not need him for the scoring, but given extended minutes and an opportunity to shine, it is not a bold prediction to say that Thomas is going to come away from the end of this season looking like one of the stars of this rookie class. My next pick amongst the underdogs in the rookie class would be Bones Highland in Denver. He is plus 8,000, so he's way down the list, right alongside Trey Murphy, who I'm putting in this same category. Not because they're similar players. Bones Highland is one of those guys who he may just fill it up with volume while he's filling in for Jamal Murray. But this is a guy who, if you had to put money down on someone, deep down the list and hope for a big payoff, Bones Highland is a very solid choice. A guy who can get buckets. Another guy I like a lot is Trey Murphy III in New Orleans. He is not the type of free-from-conscience shooter that Bones Highland is, but his shooting is incredible. And he's a two-way player. So. While there are questions in the New Orleans backcourt as far as who will get the minutes, a giant breakout candidate is Nikhil Alexander-Walker. He's the favorite amongst tons of people in the NBA analyst community as a guy who could also win most improved player. My hesitance in putting him at the top of my list is, one, he's fairly hit or miss when it comes to efficiency. He'll give you certain nights where he goes 5 for 18. You just wonder, can he hold his spot in the rotation if he puts forth regular clunkers. Now, if he reigns in the efficiency issues, he contributes across the board, Nikhil Alexander-Walker does. He'll give you rebounds, he'll give you some steals, he'll give you threes, he can score, and he's a very serviceable defender. But what I love about Trey Murphy III is that he has size, he's an excellent three-point shooter. Already, he's shown to be both discriminating with the looks he takes and very efficient. Now, in that backcourt, you have Devontae Graham, You have Josh Hart, who re-signed, who's going to get minutes between the two and three. You, of course, have Nikhil Alexander-Walker. 
and you have Trey Murphy the third. So not to mention Sadoransky and Garrett Temple, who, albeit those were more of salary matches when they traded away Lonzo Ball, they could get minutes. I do love Trey Murphy the third, and I think if he can manage to impress, he's got a chance of ending up as one of the top three guards in that rotation, and that would be the opportunity to make the kind of statistical impact he would need to to be in the running for Rookie of the Year at the end of the year. Those are my deep picks. Now, if you want my more sure thing picks, Cade, Jalen, Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, Josh Giddy. I think those five are the ones to watch. Josh Giddy can put up volume numbers and he contributes across the board with assists and rebounds. So statistically, he's going to look very good. Also, he's playing for Oklahoma City, who is going to give him a massive amount of minutes. Evan Mobley, I don't think he's going to have the kind of statistical impact maybe to get this done. But amongst these guys and their impacts on winning, Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes are two players who I think can contribute across all the statistical columns in terms of steals, blocks, rebounds, just smart plays, good ball movement. As he's gotten through this preseason, Mobley has gotten better and better. So he may even exceed my expectations, which would be difficult to do because I, like, as I stated, I'm a Cavs fan. Of course, I think he's going to be very good based on what I've seen so far. I would be content seeing him put forth a season where he averages 12 to 13 points and seven rebounds, eight rebounds. I certainly can acknowledge that he could exceed those, but I don't see him in that running for rookie of the year because you're at the mercy of your guards when you're a big man. A lot of these other prospects, the Greens, Suggs, Cade Cunningham, and Josh Giddy, they'll be able to create their own usage. Davion Mitchell seems like he'll be a very impactful rookie, but I just don't think statistically. His impact comes in the ways that don't really quantify through stats. So I don't imagine he's going to be in the rookie of the year running, despite the fact that he is in the top 10 amongst the favorites to win the award. Other rookies I like, although I don't think that they're a big enough role for them in this first year that they'll make an impact. I've said before, I'm a big Chris Duarte fan. I think he's going to be excellent. However, I just don't think it's going to matter with all that backcourt depth. Malcolm Brogdon, Karis LeVert, DJ McConnell. So that takes care of two of the awards. We got Rookie of the Year. I'm picking Jalen Green. We got Most Improved Player. I'm going Jaron Jackson Jr. Now we've arrived at NBA MVP. I will immediately, through a process of elimination, dismiss some of the favorites. The favorites as it stands right now in Vegas are Luka, Steph Curry, Giannis, Kevin Durant, Joel Embiid. I'm taking Durant out. I view them more as the let's take turns game to game type of thing than sustained playoff type Kevin Durant dominance over the course of a season, which at this point is probably what it would take for Durant to win. Giannis I'm writing off because it is extremely difficult to win multiple MVPs. He's already gone back to back. I don't know that we're going to see again another time when Giannis can win. He's an NBA champion. That's far greater of an award. It's hard for him to even improve upon what he's done. And at this point, what else would he need to do in order to win a third MVP award? Luca, he's the guy with the great narrative, with the chance to continue to improve upon what are already tremendous counting numbers. Steph, I think we'll see a little bit of a regression from. He was just so incredible last year. I think that would be hard to rival. And if Poole makes another step forward and if Klay Thompson comes back, I don't think they're going to need him to carry the level of offensive burden that he did in the previous season. The guys that I'm skeptical on from a health standpoint would be Kevin Durant, Joel Embiid, Damian Lillard. I could see all of them missing games here and there. Same thing with LeBron. Jokic, I don't think he'll go back to back. I don't think it helped that Denver got 
well, trounced in the second round of the playoffs. Certainly people will remember that. Now, if I was going to pick a dark horse candidate, I'm going Jason Tatum. He's certainly not anywhere. I mean, he's over plus 2,000. I think he's plus 2,200. He has the ability, though, and he has the luxury of being the defined first option on a team whose other offensive options, while good, there's nobody who's going to challenge his role within the team. Paul George, another one. Kawhi's out. He's going to be able to do basically whatever he wants. And nobody's ever doubted that he has the talent to put up some massive numbers. I don't think Bradley Beal will, even though his numbers are incredible, because I'm just not sure that I trust that over the course of this season. I think Spencer Dinwiddie, I know we didn't do a section on comeback player of the year, but he would be near the top of my list. And I think he's going to take some of the burden off of Bradley Beal. So I could see Rui and Spencer taking some of the burden away from what Beal has to do. And when Thomas Bryant comes back, that's another very competent offensive option in the front court alongside Montrez Harrell. So I think there's a better chance to spread it around and for Beal not to have to do nearly as much as he did. I don't believe Carl Anthony Towns will do it. I think you need relative continuity to be able to pull this off over the course of a whole season. And we just don't know what we're going to see. Is Russell going to force up a ton of shots and take looks away from him? Now they're balancing Edwards, who's going to assert himself even more. You still have Malik Beasley in there. They have a lot of possibilities of both what could happen with the players they have in the mix now and what could happen if they have to adjust to a massive roster overhaul. Now, if they do bring in Simmons eventually, Carl Anthony Towns is going to carry a massive offensive load alongside Anthony Edwards. So I guess it could happen, but I certainly don't think it will. Other guys I expect a statistical regression from. Zach Levine, who I love as a player, but there's just a lot more mouths to feed. I don't see how he can sustain some of the ancillary stats. I still think he could probably score at the same level, but his efficiency was otherworldly last year. Over 50% from the floor for a shooting guard who bombs away a ton of threes is extremely rare. I don't think it's a sure thing. I think Julius Randle put together an incredible campaign last year, certainly got some mentions as a guy who should deserve MVP consideration. Even if he puts up the same numbers, it'll be more of a been there, done that. And a lot of people are expecting the team as a whole to regress in the standings and not be the darling that it was when they won, you know, 20 games more than what was expected to them in Vegas last year. So I don't expect he'll be in the discussion by the end of the year. Zion, Ja, Donovan Mitchell, these are all guys on the list. I mean, Mitchell, yeah, I guess he has the capability, but I don't know that I believe he'll do it. If I had to pick, some dark horses. I'm putting my money on Tatum and Paul George. And if I had to pick a favorite, I think Luca is the obvious favorite, but I think everybody would agree with that. He has the best odds. So that wouldn't be a shocking pick. I wanted to at least touch on some of the lesser guys that I think could exceed expectations and maybe not win the award, but finish in the top five potentially. So that brings us from individual awards to the teams that I think will overperform and underperform. There's one logical place to start here a team that's had a huge roster overhaul in the summer and loaded up with star-level players, and that would be the Chicago Bulls. Certainly, opinions on the Bulls are all over the board. Some think that they're now a top five, six seed in the East, and others think they'll be dancing on the outside of the playoff picture and that they brought in guys who, while great statistically, may not contribute to winning basketball. You had DeMar DeRozan. He had his struggles with the Spurs. Of course, Vooch didn't accomplish pretty much anything in Orlando. And you have Levine, who struggled with the Bulls. But I've never been a guy that buys into the narrative that just because a guy has played in losing situations, 
that they're a losing player. And bringing these three guys together, and more importantly, adding a fourth dynamic player in that starting unit with Lonzo Ball and some excellent bench help with Caruso will make an impact. I believe those things will make an impact. I think the Bulls are definitely a playoff team. I would expect them to be competing with the Knicks, competing with the Pacers, amongst those teams that will round out the playoff picture in the East. I do think that this is the year that they break that playoff drought. In terms of other teams that I think could exceed expectations, Boston is one of my favorites as far as coming into this offseason. They turned over Fournier, and they turned over Walker, and they turned them into Horford, discount Dennis Schroeder, along with the development they're going to get out of Peyton Pritchard, an expanded role for Robert Williams III, Cantor's back in the mix, Josh Richardson, of course, while he's had a couple bad years in a row, and I love Robert Williams III. Part of this might be because of fantasy basketball, I admit. He's one of those guys who does stuff that you don't rarely see as a guy who gets both steals and blocks and does it at high efficiency. I've always loved him because of fantasy basketball over the course of the last year or two. But now he's got a legitimate chance with a big contract. They will prioritize him getting floor time. And while Horford could stand in the way of that to some degree, I do believe that Williams is a good enough player that if he can avoid foul trouble, he is going to take a massive leap this year. So now for a team I think is going to disappoint, I'm going to say the Toronto Raptors. And I'm saying this despite the fact that I love what they did in drafting Scotty Barnes. I love OG Ananobi as a player. I was not even that high on Kyle Lowry. I think Miami paid far too much for a guy who's pretty old. And while I do agree he's better than Dragic, I still think Dragic is a decent backup plan in terms of what they got back for him leaving. I think the real issue I have with Toronto is not that they shouldn't be better than they are. Teams above them also should be better than they are. So who are they going to leap past? Are they a sure thing to pass Charlotte? They got second-year LaMelo. Miles Bridges looked excellent at the end of last season. They had the rookie book night, and Hayward's back, which should be a big impact to their encore play. The Knicks, are they going to be worse than last year? Possibly. But a team built around defense doesn't normally just slide They added Kemba, they added Fournier, maybe their defense will be massively weaker. But it also seems like they have more offensive firepower. And Toppin and Quickly, they looked better. Their rookies looked very good in the summer league. So for the first time in probably forever, I'm higher on the Knicks than other people are. I've hated on them for the better part of the last decade. But last year did show me something, and I'm not quite the skeptic that it seems like many others are. I simply don't know that I have enough faith that Toronto is going to make a leap back into playoff contention. Because I think for the first time in a while, we can look at the East as a whole and say that's a very formidable side of the bracket now. It's no longer just the West and the East was an afterthought. The East is starting to get some talented squads. So those are the East teams. Now that brings us to the West. Who do I expect to do better than they're slotted in? This is a tough one because I actually look at how Vegas has it predicted and they have Utah, LA, Phoenix, and Golden State is the top four seeds. I do very much like the Denver Nuggets, and I think that they're going to have an even better season than they did last year. And despite the fact that Murray's not there, I think there's a distinct chance that they could climb into a top four seed. If I had to pick somebody who would have to fall, though, the logical choice would be the LA Lakers for me. Because they don't have the continuity that the Suns do or the Jazz do, Even the Golden State Warriors, who, yes, they haven't exactly had continuity in terms of injuries, but in terms of the core pieces of their roster, I think you're going to see a very motivated Steph Curry. 
Draymond Green, Clay Thompson will come back into the fold. And I am a huge believer in the shooting that they've added around those guys. Not that you need shooting when you have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, but Jordan Poole is poised for a breakout. I love Otto Porter Jr. He might be my favorite vet men signing of the offseason. You never know what you're going to get out of year two Wiseman. Big men take longer to develop. I feel like he's all but forgotten at this point, and he certainly has a chance to make an impact. He could drastically improve upon his rookie season. So the Lakers, while massive as far as talent goes, they have a lot of pieces. They have a lot of good players. They don't have continuity. They have the age issues, the historical disregard to the regular season that LeBron-led teams have shown. Everybody looks at Russell Westbrook as the cure to that issue. Well, he's going to try 100% all the time. He'll bring them up. His talent alone will keep them atop the standings during the regular season. I just don't believe that LeBron puts that much weight in the regular season that we're going to see the focus on the standings that may keep them in the top four. I would not be shocked at all if we see them slide out of the top four simply due to injury and the lack of emphasis that LeBron puts on regular season results. So I guess if I had to pick a top four team as... Unpopular as this opinion may be in Los Angeles, I would pick the Lakers to fall out of the top four. And if I had to pick one in that next group of four to climb up, well, my pick is the Nuggets. So I think that's enough. I put a bunch of stuff to tape. I'm going to get to look back at all of this and see how wrong I was at the end of this season. But for now, nothing to do but get excited for tip-off tomorrow as the NBA regular season kicks off and Broken Jumper heads into its first season since its inception, ready to talk NBA basketball. On a weekly basis, I am Bob Schmidt, the voice of AM570 LA Sports. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to Broken Jumper and follow me on social media at Broken Jumper or at Broken Jumper Pod. The website, brokenjumper.com. That's it. No more Broken Jumper. No. No. Download past episodes you missed and like and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Go to the iHeartRadio app. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Broken Jumper. And tune in weekly for more NBA coverage.